Well, if you're new to New Hope, welcome. Glad that you're here. Uh, take one of those uh, welcome cards while you're here, if you don't mind. And uh, they're in the pew racks in front of you, and you, you can fill it out and then slide it in the offering box in the back as you leave this morning. On the back side of it, there's an area for prayer requests. If you have any particular item you'd like to share with the church or anonymously, you can check the little anonymous box. And we have a prayer team here. I'd be happy to pray for you. Be our honor to do that. If if after the service um, you've never had a chance to connect with me, I'd love to talk with you. If you're new here and we've we've not met before, matter of fact, even if you're not new here, I met somebody last week that I was talking to at uh, the men's study, and uh, I said, "So, like, how long have you been coming to New Hope?" Because he was brand new to me, and he said, "Well, I've been here about a year." <laughs> Sorry. We just, we'd never met, we'd never crossed paths, and, and here's the problem. I know when you see individuals around, because the growth of the church, um, you see individuals, you're not sure, well, maybe they go to the 915, or maybe they go to the Saturday night service, and so you're not really sure who's new. Let me encourage you, just step outside of your shell when you're out there drinking coffee or eating snacks, and just go up and ask somebody how long they've been here. Maybe they'll embarrass you too by saying that they've been here a year. And just a chance for you to connect as a, as a church family. It's a great way to get to know each other, especially downstairs when you're eating popcorn, right, in the children's ministry open house after this, okay? Let me remind you to do that. Okay, before we step into the text, can I ask you to pray with me? God will focus our hearts. Lord God, we thank you for this time, and we've been able to lift up praise to you. We use instrument and we use our voice and we acknowledge that even when we don't feel like praising, you are worthy to be praised. In times when our hearts are distracted, you are worthy to be praised. Likewise, God, even when we're distracted from studying your word and looking at it like we're about to, there's a potential that our minds will wander. We'll be thinking about things we have to do this afternoon or things that happened this last week. We ask, God, that you help us to be fully present in this moment, that our minds will not wander, but that we will give you the attention that you're worthy of. Father, we ask that you would cause your word to be alive and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, just as you promised it is. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So if you're looking at chapter 19 and chapter 18 of the book of John, like we have in the last couple of weeks, and you would have only had chapter 18 and chapter 19 as the conclusion, you would have thought, wow, things failed in a pretty miserable way. Jesus went down in flames. Look at what happened. And from the the lens of individuals who were there that day looking at the events, they're feeling like everything has completely collapsed. Look at what we've read so far in John 19, verse 16. So he, meaning Pilate, then handed him over to them to be crucified. Now based on what you've learned in the last couple of weeks, if you've been here, what's going on with the scourging and the crucifixions, pretty severe treatment of someone. And if that's all you knew, and that's your perspective, there's no wonder they're feeling this sense of despair. Jesus has just been turned over to an execution squad. And they themselves have heard him yell out, It is finished! And they don't know it from the perspective that we do. So they're thinking, yeah, it's finished. It's over. We're told last week that the very last thing that he did was he gave up his spirit, his own control, his own ability. 
Now, if you're looking at it through the lens of the followers of Jesus, the disciples that were there, and the, the women who were watching from a distance, even the quasi-followers are looking at this through the lens of hopelessness. Now we get this very interesting insight from Mark. Mark tells us that there's a non-spiritual guy, a man who's been hired by Rome, who's standing there watching all of this unfold, and he's right in front of the cross. Look with me up on the screen at Mark 15, 39. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. So a non-spiritual guy hired by Rome to carry out the execution, standing right in front of the cross. How great would that have been? What a view to watch all of this unfold. We hear him make a theological statement. So that tells me that there's a lot of other things that were going on in this moment that we weren't really aware of when we looked at it last week. We'll have to ask ourselves, what else was happening that we did not see when we looked at this last week that's playing into this environment? Well, we know that the sky went black. Scripture says, as black as night, darkness settled upon the land from noon at midday until three in the afternoon, darkness covered this region. According to extra-biblical sources, it was not just Jerusalem. It was the entire land of Israel that went black because the light of God has been withdrawn. And in a very exemplary way, Jesus is enduring this moment of the outpouring of the wrath of God because the darkness of the sin of the world has come down on Him. But it was a literal darkness that everyone could see, black as night. Now, in the midst of this unparalleled suffering, because no one has ever endured what Jesus endured, and I don't mean just the physical scourging and the crucifixion, I mean bearing the weight of the sin of the world from the time of Adam to the last man or woman is born, Jesus is bearing the sin of God's weight on Him, the wrath of the world. So we hear that His lips opened in these last moments. And he said something that no one expected him to say, and people still can't reconcile today. He opens not his mouth to ask for physical relief. The one who called water from a rock, the one who turned water into wine, the one who spoke bread and fish into existence on a beach, could have relieved his physical need in a moment. But that's not what he opens his mouth to say. Look with me what he says. Matthew 27, 46, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So if you are one of those followers who are watching from a distance or watching close by and you see all of this, the darkness on the land, Jesus has been scourged and crucified and now he's yelling out, my God, why have you forsaken me? You can see why they feel this sense of despair. Now add to the phenomena of the crucifixion the fact that we know these extra details that at the moment that Jesus breathed his last, the earth began to tremble lightly and then built to a massive rumble, a huge earthquake. Rocks were split in two. Graves opened up. The veil of the temple was shredded. And the veil of the temple, if you've never looked at it before, we understand from archaeologists that the veil that was there was 
10 feet high. And this thing separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. And only one person could go into the Holy of Holies. That was the high priest once a year. And so it was woven like a tapestry, 12 inches thick. And that's what God ripped in half into two pieces. We get that from Matthew 27, 51. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Now for those who are at the cross, standing at the crucifixion, watching from a distance, wherever they're at, they're not in the temple. They don't know that the veil was just shredded. They're not in the cemetery. They don't know that the tombs have just opened up. What they see is the wrath of God. They see the darkness, the earth shaking, Jesus crying out. And now God's people are left with a sense of hopelessness, utter despair. That's why we see the disciples go into hiding that night for fear of their own lives. What's happened here? They've forgotten to take God at His word. They've forgotten to believe God for His promises. See, the same God who delivered Jonah and Daniel and Noah and David and Moses is still on His throne. But they've allowed the circumstances, the visible circumstances going on in their life in that moment to overrule and despair has set in because they think that what they see is all that there is. And that's why Luke tells us in Luke 23, 48, people left the scene beating their chest, grieving. They didn't know what to do. So we have to ask ourselves in this moment, if that's the physical scene, they're looking around, they can see this, what's happening around them that they did not see? Even though God was making it plain to them, And I ask that question for this reason because there is consistently things going on around your world and my world that appears to be as though everything is collapsing around us. And we feel at times a sense of despair, yet God is working His plan even though we can't see it. So what's happening around them that they did not see even though God's making it plain? Look with me at John 19, 31. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to follow along there, but it will be up on the screen as well. John 19, 31, it says this, Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So they're going back to Pilate again. Pilate has already told them he's not going to agree to their request when they've asked for this sign to be taken off the cross that says he's the king of the Jews. Pilate says, no way. What I've written, I've written. Well, now they're coming back to him again with another request. We want you to break his legs. We want you to break the legs of everyone on the cross. Now, John goes to the degree of telling us this very special piece of information, that it's Friday, the day of preparation. And that should cause your stomach to begin to turn when you see those two put together because there's this sense of nauseating hypocrisy. It's 3.30 in the afternoon. Jesus has died around 3 o'clock, late in the afternoon, and He says, tomorrow is a high day. So the Jews are concerned because the Romans usually leave the bodies on the cross. This is Roman custom. 
When a person is crucified on the cross, they leave them for the vultures. They leave them up there for days for the scavengers. And then the Romans eventually will throw the bodies into a pit, a common ditch, because the criminals couldn't afford a tomb. So that's how they dealt with burying criminals. But for the Jews, their law banned leaving bodies on the cross after sundown because God's Word in Deuteronomy said that if you left a person who was cursed by God on a cross after sundown, it would desecrate the land. So this is why it nauseates my stomach. They are so concerned about the minutia of carrying out God's law while at the same time killing God. They have no comprehension of what they've just done. They're zealous to carry out God's law for getting what they've just executed illegally. Now they're asking Pilate that the legs might be broken. What we understand is that Jesus died much, much sooner than what people were expected to die on a cross. He's on there from 9 o'clock to 3 o'clock. Most individuals lingered for two to three days, some up to four days before they died. But Jesus is dead within six hours. Crucified at 9 o'clock, dead at 3 o'clock. So Pilate was even shocked at this. Look with me on the screen. Mark 15, 44. Pilate wondered, meaning he was surprised, Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time. And summoning the centurion, the commander of the execution squad, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. Why would the soldiers break their legs? Well, that would accelerate death. Because as you learned last week, we looked at the crucifixion. Someone on the cross had to raise themselves up on their toes to allow the arms to drop and the tension in the chest to open the lungs up so they could take a breath and then the body would slump down again and they couldn't breathe. And then they had to go back up again on their toes. So if they break their legs, they can't possibly do that. So what we understand is that very gruesome detail, but these soldiers had an iron mallet. And it was much like a sledgehammer. And they wouldn't just break the small bone of the leg. They would shatter both bones in the leg. Matter of fact, the Greek word that's used here is expressed this way, to shiver to pieces. Shattered the leg with an iron mallet. So verse 32 says they carried it out. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Now you've got to know that an execution squad who works for Rome is well acquainted with death, especially death on a cross. That's their job. They're professionals. Can you imagine the penalty for a Roman soldier who would prematurely take a convicted criminal down off the cross before he was actually dead. Let alone the fact that they would disobey a commanding officer's order. Let alone that they would disobey the governor of the entire nation. Pilate has just given an express order for the legs of three convicted criminals to be broken on the cross. Would they dare disobey him? unless they're absolutely sure that he's dead? So even the Roman soldiers we see become a witness unknowingly because they have nothing to gain by lying about Jesus' death. Why is that significant? Because there's a lie that's told even today. You'll hear it in academic circles that Jesus never actually died on the cross, that he went into a coma. 
and being placed in the tomb, which was a cool environment, he was revived, and when they rolled away the stone, he walked out. That lie started 2,000 years ago, still being told today. Now, Roman soldiers certainly know that he is dead. It's utter absurdity to say anything else, as you'll see in just a moment. Look with me at verse 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Just to see if there's going to be any reaction. It wasn't just a little poking, a thrust of the spear into the chest cavity. Now, because I don't understand medical things, I called a couple physicians this week, and I just did some texting and exchanging information trying to understand what's going on here, because in my mind, dead bodies don't bleed. Jesus is dead. How does he bleed like that? There's no action of the heart to produce any arterial pressure whatsoever. One of the physicians clarified for me that since the body is erect and it's up on the cross, gravity plays into this. Another physician clarified for me what's going on here is that the red blood corpuscles immediately at death, the tissue lining breaks down and the white blood corpuscles separate from the red. That's that's instantaneous. And apparently the most common medical theory is that this spear, this, this soldier picked up his weapon and he hit the pericardial sac of water around the heart. Now even if Jesus was in perfect physical health, A spear through the chest, penetrating the pericardial sac, hitting the heart, causing the eruption of blood and water to gush out, would have killed him instantly. That's why you see John go on to the next act to say, however it happened, John's emphasizing Jesus' death is beyond any shadow of a doubt. So he takes us to the next step in verse 35 to say, there's this really unusual thing that happened, this act of piercing the body. Go with me to verse 35. And he who has seen, notice he's saying, I'm an eyewitness. He who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. This is shocking. That's why John's going to the great length of saying, my account is not hearsay. It's not fable. There's no legend. It's a historical record. I was an eyewitness to these actual events. Why? Look closely at verse 35. So that you may believe. I was there. I'm here to tell you it actually happened. Now he places great emphasis on emphasizing the fact that he witnessed it that he's telling the truth. Why, then, we understand that John wrote this when he was in his 90s. What's going on when John's in his 90s? Well, around the first century, at the very end of the first century, the gospel of Jesus Christ has spread throughout the earth, the known world. It's made its way into Rome. It's made its way into Asia. John's living up in the northern, northern region, somewhere around Turkey, and he begins to hear that there's things being spread about Jesus that Jesus didn't actually have a physical body. That Jesus was just an apparition. That what people saw was just like a ghost, a spirit walking around. So John's making it very emphatic for us, so that you may believe, I'm going to attach it to Old Testament prophecy, and he begins to attach it to prophecy. Why does he do that? 
Well, let's look at what he quoted here. First of all, Psalms 34.20. He says, this prophecy is being fulfilled. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. What's that associated with? The Passover lamb, all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy. God said that when you sacrifice the lambs for the sin of the people, you will not have a broken bone in his body or he will be unacceptable to me. It will not be a sufficient offering. John gives us another quote. He says from Zechariah 12.10, They will look on me whom they have pierced. Go down a couple sentences in that verse that you see. They will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. When you see this passage, you understand that that's talking about ultimately the second coming. When the entire planet earth will look upon the one who has been pierced through the side, specifically the nation of Israel, and they will realize in that moment, whether it's 2012 or 2020 or the year 3000, they will look upon Jesus when he returns in the clouds and they will see the one they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for a firstborn because they killed their king. But at the cross, we've got these three groups there who are also seeing the piercing of Jesus' side. The executioners are there. The the Jews are there, the religious leaders. And the disciples of Jesus who were at a distance. That's why John said, I saw this. I saw it myself. Now, I'm going to put those three groups into our modern-day vernacular because the same three groups exist today. We'll say that the Romans are those who are ambivalent. Those who, I don't really care. I, I mean, okay, it's God's Word. It doesn't make that big a deal to me. It doesn't affect my life. But the Romans were watching this. And we'll say that the Jews were those who were completely opposed to the things of Jesus. They have no use for them whatsoever, and they will take a very firm stand about their position. And then the third group would be the group of believers. Although some believers very nominal in their belief. All of them saw the wound, but perceived something quite different in the wound. Now keep those things in your mind as I ask this question. What's happening around them that they cannot see even though God is making it plain to them but they don't have the lenses to interpret what's going on? As we move forward into this next section, just keep that vegetating in your mind. Now understand that when they came and asked for Jesus' body, which is what you're going to see next, there was something very specific in the first century. Unless arrangements had been made prior to the person dying for Rome to give them over their body, they would not turn over the body of a convicted criminal, especially someone who had been convicted of sedition, which is what Jesus was crucified for. So Jesus would have been commonly buried in what we would call Boot Hill, a place where criminals would go where there's no designated grave for them. They just throw them in a ditch. And in the Middle East, they'd be buried within 24 hours, typically. But yet, in the Old Testament, Isaiah's got this obscure prophecy that says that when the Messiah came, he would be buried by a rich man. Look with me on the screen. Isaiah 53, 9. Messiah's grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. So he's with the criminals, the wicked men, and yet a rich man in his death. So even if he avoids being thrown in the common burial pit, how is he with a rich man in his death? 
Once again, our God is a God of detail. So enter Joseph of Arimathea, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Now, what do we know about this guy? Well, he was rich, a very, very wealthy individual, according to Matthew 27. He's a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, which means the Supreme Court. And he had not agreed to the condemnation of Jesus. He stood against them in Luke 23. He's the one that disagreed with them, saying it was completely wrong. Now, a member of the Sanhedrin uses his rank to gain access to Pilate, the leader over the nation, a Roman leader who's been installed. If you have your own Bible and you don't mind writing in there, Mark 15.43 actually says, it says went boldly. The, the real interpretation there would be he gathered up courage because it takes a really courageous man to walk into Pilate's presence and ask for the condemned body of a criminal who's hanging on the cross. So John goes one step further to tell us in verse 38, he was a secret believer for fear. His request, what he's doing, is an open admission that he belongs to Jesus. He's a friend of Jesus. An open confession of faith. Up to this time, he's been a secret believer. So he's exposing himself to an even greater danger by walking into Pilate's presence and saying, hey, um, you know, if you don't mind, could I have his body? Now, I'm sure Pilate would have had a strong reaction to it, but we won't get into that right now. But I'll ask myself, why was he a secret believer? Because there are a lot of secret believers today. There are. There are a lot of people hiding in the darkness that are afraid to come out for Jesus. Well, as you'll see this unfold, what you'll realize is that he was afraid of losing his prestige. He was afraid of losing his power. He's afraid of losing his position in the community. People who would look at him differently if they knew that he belonged to Jesus. It's the same issue 2,000 years later. Many people just stand in the shadows because they're afraid of losing their power or their position or their prestige in the community. Now, we're told that there's another cloaking believer. Go with me to the next verse, verse 39. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds in weight. So just like Joseph, Nicodemus is a secret believer. And you'll notice as you read the book of John, every time he's referred to, he's named as the one who came to Jesus by night because he came in and he crept in under the cover of night, didn't want anybody to know that he was there. We looked at this all the way back in John chapter 3 months ago. Let me remind you of just a short verse here. John 3, 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. So we understand that Nicodemus is a member of the elite party of the Pharisees. It says, a ruler of the Jews which means he sat on the bench. He was a leader of the Supreme Court, but yet a secret believer who's standing in the shadows, a man with influence who's afraid to say what he really believes, not yet a fully committed disciple. 
Now, from a human perspective, Nick and Joe are not the guys that you would put at the top of your list to say they're going to be really helpful at the time of Jesus' death. But the hour is getting late. It's 3.30 in the afternoon. The sun's going to set around 5 or 5.30. It's April. They have to move very, very quickly. So one apparently stays at the cross while the other one goes to Pilate and asks for the body. And these two men working together are able to do something that no one else is able to do. Their disciples are not able to do it. Jesus' family is not able to do what they're about to do. One is going to use his position of prestige. The other one is going to use his wealth. And they're going to orchestrate something because they understand that you have to pick up your cross daily if you're going to really be a follower of Jesus. They'd heard Jesus say that. Look with me on the screen, Luke 9.23. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily. Imagine the reaction of Jesus' listeners when he said that because they knew what a cross was. And for him to say, you got to pick up this instrument of death if you're going to follow me. So at this moment, Nicodemus and Joseph rise to the challenge, and I begin to smell boldness on their behalf because they're going to move in a wave against society. Society has already said, tomorrow's Passover. It's a high holy day. We dare not violate ourselves. Remember, the religious leaders wouldn't even go into Pilate's presence in the praetorium because they didn't want to violate themselves for Passover, let alone a Jew, a Pharisee of Pharisees, touching a dead body. Not just a dead body, the dead body of a convicted criminal whom all of society has said, crucify him. How bold is that? You talk about being bold for God and picking up your cross so that everyone can see what you are about to do? What happened to them as a result of this? Sanhedrin had a very common practice for individuals that did what they did. They banished them. They banished them from the synagogue. They cast them out from their presence. They closed down their businesses. They forbid them from any contact with people in the community. You couldn't even converse with them. These guys put their position, their prestige, and their power on the line because they're willing to step up on behalf of Jesus. Now, there's something remarkable that I want you to see in detail before we go to this last verse. It has to do with the spices. We're told in verse 39 that they carried about 100 pounds in weight. That's the same amount that was always purchased and used for the burial of a prominent person like a king. But they used aloe and myrrh. Aloe and myrrh were a very specific substance that was used for the burial of a body. We're told that they're going to wrap him in linen. Aloe and myrrh have a chemical reaction when they're put together. Aloe comes from the lily plants that grow in that region, and they strip the oils out of it. The myrrh comes from the gum of a tree down in Egypt. But when the two are combined together, it has a chemical reaction, and it causes the chemicals to begin to absorb moisture, drawing moisture out of a wet substance. So let's look at the next verse and find out what they did with it. Verse 40, So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen, wrapping it with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. A burial of a body always had to take place before sundown. 
because it's almost Shabbat. It's almost Passover, and they can't be out after dark. Now the spices begin to get wrapped into the cloth the same way that Lazarus was buried. And as the moisture makes contact with the spices, it hardens the cloth that is wrapped around the body, creating a casing around the body. That's why Jesus told the individuals that they had to cut Lazarus' cloths off from him because he's completely bound up. Now notice at this point, neither Nicodemus nor Joseph nor the women watching were expecting that Jesus would rise again. If they did, they would have never spent the money to buy a hundred pounds of spices to wrap him in, let alone to prepare the body for burial let alone to give his personal tomb. How did Joseph and Nicodemus know to prepare for Jesus' burial? If you've been in the study since we've started this all the way back in chapter 7, we talked about Nicodemus in chapter 7 standing up before the entire Sanhedrin body and protesting that they were about to prosecute Jesus. Their response to him was this, Nicodemus, look through the Scriptures, search the Old Testament, and you will see that no prophet comes out of Galilee. The Messiah couldn't possibly come from that region. Well, I think, as I've looked at this, Nicodemus did exactly that. He searched, and he looked, and he explored the law. He was an expert in Old Testament law, and he came to a stunning conclusion. And Joseph, along with him, it's really him. He's really the one. That's how they knew in advance to bring all these spices because you can't buy them on the day of preparation. The merchants had shut down the shops. You can't get a tomb instantly. They had planned this out in advance because they came to conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah. So we come to these last two verses and it helps us bring all these pieces together now. Verse 41, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. A private garden, according to Scripture, not a public cemetery. Matthew tells us it was Joseph's own rock-hewn tomb, and in Scripture in, in Greek indicates that it was like an orchard or a plantation, something beautifully groomed. Verse 42, this is the last one. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So, as far as Nicodemus and Joseph are concerned, it's over. It's final. Everything is done. It's failed. But they've done their part to bury him. The disciples had forgotten what Jesus had said. They had forgotten His words or they didn't believe Him. Look with me at Matthew 12.40 for what Jesus said would happen. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So the disciples have forgotten, but the Jewish leaders have not forgotten. The religious leaders were so determined to make sure that this rumor about Jesus would not spread, they had one more request for Pilate. Look with me on the screen, Matthew 27, 62. 
The next day, after the day of preparation, the chief priest and the Pharisees assembled before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that while the deceiver was still alive, he said, After three days I will rise again. So give orders to secure the tomb until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal his body and say to the people, He has been raised from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, Take a guard of soldiers, go and make it as secure as you can. So they went with the soldiers of the guard and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone. Now, in my mind, I can see the smug look on the faces of the Pharisees. We got him. What's going to happen now? He's in a rock-hewn tomb. There's a huge stone that's been rolled over the entrance. Pilate himself has agreed to put his own personal seal on it. And along with that, there's Roman guards out in front who would dare now try and take his his body. So I'm thinking that they went to the party that night, dipping into the punch bowl, patting themselves on the back, saying, we really did it. We shut the guy down. How could he possibly achieve what he said he would do now? How useless it is to try and contain the Son of God Oh my goodness, what were they thinking? The sovereign hand of God orchestrated all of these events. So consider this, church, how much your God wanted you to know these details and facts that John says, I was an eyewitness to these things because what's happening around them that they did not see made sense weeks and months and years later even though God was making it plain in the moment. See, the particulars are really clear. Prophecy says he keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. But the, pilot, the, the, the disciples' reaction from a distance is a Savior who is scourged, who's had his flesh stripped from his body. But Scripture says they will look on me whom they have pierced. And the disciples would say, a Savior who dies? on a Roman instrument of death. But Scripture says that he would be numbered with the wicked men, yet with a rich man in his death. And the disciples are thinking, a Savior who's buried? How is he a Savior? These events are the most improbable thing to ever enter the world of men. Yet in the very instant when everything appears to have failed, God is at work around them if they will only look through the lenses of God's plan. Because God put it into the heart of a Roman soldier when he's about to swing his steel mallet and crush the legs of the one whom we're told he would not have broken bones, he stops. You guys, you know, I don't think he's alive. I think he's dead. So somebody picks up a spear, an instrument of war, and plunges it into his chest. Something that had been written 400 years earlier, God carries out because a Roman soldier decided to disobey his Roman commander. God put it in the heart of a Roman commander to stand before the cross and say something no one else would say. This is really the Son of God. God put it in the heart of a rich man to say, I've got a tomb. I've got a place that we can bury him. 
Who but God could orchestrate these events? Who but God would move in the heart of a wealthy man like Joseph to take a public stand before everyone watching and identify himself with a known criminal so that he would buy a tomb so that God could on Sunday morning send his angel in great power and glory to come down and sit on the stone. And I'm getting ahead of myself. That's for next week. Who but God, church? Here's why this is significant for you today. Knowing all of these details. Is anything too hard for your God? Do you remember that statement? It comes from the book of Exodus. Exodus or Genesis 18.14. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Do you know who said that? God. God himself said this redundant question. Is anything too difficult for me? He's about to make Abraham into a great nation. We understand that God asked that question because there's nothing too difficult for him. So surely, if the most minute details of prophecy regarding even the burial of Jesus are important to God, if these are important to God the Father, what does that say about his promises to you? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Fear not, for I am with you. The things that I have begun in you, I will complete. That's why Paul wrote what he did in Romans 4.21. He said, surely, you've got to know that what God has promised, he is able to complete it. If God has intended to bring about his promises, even in Jesus' burial, what he has begun in you, he is faithful to complete. So the same God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, who rescued David, who rescued Daniel, who rescued Noah, who rescued Moses, is still on the throne even when it doesn't appear like it. Let's pray. Father, we pray right now asking that you would seal this in our heart because we are prone to forget We are quick to allow these things to escape because visibly things look like they might be collapsing. Individuals will look at their own personal lives and feel as though things are out of control. Father, in the midst of our traumas, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of global and international circumstances, we recognize that you are faithful to complete everything that you began and not one word of your prophecy will fail. You said you are the God who cannot lie. So Father, we stand on those promises. As we take on this week, we take on this afternoon, not knowing what it's going to hold, we trust you. Help us to remember, Father, what we've learned this morning. We ask this in the mighty name of our soon coming King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.